We've been in a series called You Asked For It, and this is uh, now week seven of this series, and the whole idea behind this series has been you have submitted questions that you've had about your faith, about God, about the Bible, about our culture, about life, and what we've been doing is going to the Bible and looking at what God's uh, perspective is on the questions that you've had, or we've used the Bible to ask, answer your questions about faith and especially about God. And one of the things I've been telling you from the beginning of this series is we unashamedly answer these questions from the Word of God. Some skeptics say, well, prove what you're talking about outside of Scripture. And my point is, friends, I don't want to. I mean, there is evidence outside of Scripture for many of the questions that we're exploring. But for us as believers to get a good hold of our faith, we build our faith upon the Word of God. And so we have to go there with life questions because God is smart enough, and in His wisdom, He's actually addressed many of the complexities of our cultural life and our spiritual life in the Bible. The problem is a lot of believers don't take the time to read it. They don't take the time to know what it says inside of there. And so you've brought your questions here, and my hope has been that going through this series, you have become more interested in God's Word and taking your questions to the Bible. You know, there are so many good resources today. There are so many Bibles that in the back part of your Bible, it actually has categorical uh, areas you can go look up topics in your Bible that help you address questions in life. So I hope that by practice of what you've seen here, you can begin to apply this to your own life. So we've talked about questions concerning end of life, suicide, homosexuality, uh, gender issues, sexual sin. We've talked about um, cremation. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about questions you had from the Bible. And today, I'm going to tackle your questions that you submitted about God. And when we talk about God, I, ha I just have to say, you know what? We are going into some deep waters when we talk about God. Because the reality is we are very limited in our ability to wrap our mind and our language around the vastness and the complexity of God. All right? But we're going to try to tackle some of your questions that have come up concerning the character and the nature of God as revealed in Scripture. But before we do, I think it's wise just to pray. Because God has got to guide us and touch our hearts about this, because this is Him. And here's the good news, friends. He wants to reveal Himself to you, and He has through Scripture. He has through the work of Christ Jesus in His earthly ministry as shown us in the New Testament. He's revealing Himself to us. Isn't that awesome that God wants to do that, that we have a God who is actively involved in our life, not some hands-off God who doesn't care? He's here. He's with us. Let's pray. Father, as we explore you and your character in Scripture, I just pray that you would give me adequate words to describe who you are, because I know our human language is so insufficient for describing who you are. But God, I pray you would open our hearts to the truth of how you've revealed yourself to us in the Word. So open our hearts and our minds, we pray. Guide us by the Holy Spirit to be good stewards of your Word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question that came in concerning God was, where did God come from? Where did God come from? Now, how many honest questionnaires have thought of that question yourself? Where did God come from? I mean, come on. I mean, most of us are like, things have a beginning, things have an end, so where did God come from? And the simple answer would be that God did not come from anywhere or anything. End of question. Let's move on. But I know you want to know more than just a simple pat answer. So here's the thing about God. He has expressed who He is 
in the Bible. In expressions of himself, he has shown us his attributes. That means the things that make up God to be God and to be so wholly different from us, his created beings. So he addresses this question when he calls Moses to go to Egypt. You might remember the story in, in Exodus. We now find the Israelites living in captivity, so to speak, in slavery in Egypt. And God hears their cries of his ignorant people. See, while they're in Egypt, they're not really learning about God. There is no prophet of God. There is no priest of God. All they have is their Jewish heritage. All they have are the stories that have been passed down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's all they have. And they've been now hundreds of years in Egypt. And they are surrounded by this culture and living in slavery. And God hears their cries. And he sends a deliverer in the form of Moses. And when Moses says, okay, great, God, but when I go there... Who do I tell them sent me? And this is how God answers. This is Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, how many would feel like you're now well equipped to go face Pharaoh and the Israelites with that, right? We look at that and go, that didn't really answer my question, God. I mean, I was asking, who is sending? And you just said, I am. You sound like Popeye. I am's that I am. Sarah, whatever he said, right? But in that title, God introduces to Moses who he really is. And he is speaking to his attribute of his eternal being. When God says, I am, what he is saying in that title is the all-encompassing aspect of who God is. He is now. He always has been. He always will be. So he's always the present I am. And this is what I love about God in relation to other uh, religions that pitch their God, is that our God is actively involved. He is right now. He always has been. He always will be. But he is right now. And what he's saying is Moses tell him, I am, is with him. Because I am involved in your life. Now, that still may not answer your question to say, okay, but great. He says, I am. Well, in the Bible, he also goes further with this idea of his attribute. In fact, in Revelation, God again speaks of his eternal nature. He says this in Revelation 1.8. In fact, by the way, I want to pause here. If you want to follow along with today's message, there's a couple ways you can do that. One is use your smart device. Please do it. Um, and in there is the Bible app. Some of you have the YouVersion Bible app, the most downloaded Bible app in the world. Um, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can simply go to uh, your menu, events, and under events, you'll find Neighborhood Church as a live event. You can go right there. Our notes will be there. Also, if you go to albanync.org, our website on your smart device, you can go to message notes, and it'll be right in there as a blog post with all of our notes. So Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So when God was, in the very beginning of Revelation, expressing who he is to John, he speaks of the attributes of who he is, that he always has been, and he always will be, and he is right now. When the four living creatures were around the throne, captured in Revelation, worshiping God, this is what they said, Revelation 4, 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So God has revealed himself in Scripture as being eternal. 
Now, when we think about eternal, we really can't put our minds around eternity because nothing that we experience in this life is eternal. So when we talk about eternity, it's hard for us to grasp because we think about, well, everything has been made. Everything has had a start. Things that we're experienced with in our world had a beginning. And so we can't comprehend this. But I think maybe the question that's being asked here isn't just, you know, where did God come from? I think the question is maybe who made God? If God made everything, then who made God? And the answer is nobody made God. That is the aspect of being eternal. That means there was never a beginning point and there's never an ending point. And again, for us to understand that is hard because everything we know in our universe had a beginning point. But he has no beginning, therefore he doesn't have to be made. And here's how you can take this argument further. Okay, here's the question. If somebody made God, then who made God? You see how far this argument can, can keep going? And the point is, no matter how far back you think somebody could have made something that could have made something that could have made something, something had to start all by itself. Right? For there to be anything to create something, it had to become self-existent. It had to be just, it had to be. Now, again, for us, to, we, get, we start getting confused thinking about the complexity of the eternity and the eternal aspect of our God. But the reality about God is He's this self-existent God who is eternal. Therefore, He had no origin. That's why God could speak and make and put into motion and begin the creation of our world. But he is self-existent, eternal. Again, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that attribute, but trying to say that an uncreated eternal being who made that would be kind of like saying, well, what sound does silence make? Right? You can't describe what sound Silence makes because silence is the attribute of the sound of silence. And all of a sudden, you're all now thinking about that song. Silence, right? Um, what sound of silence make it? It, that's the, the, it is itself silence. Who made God? No. God is himself made. He is self-existent. And so it's part of, you know, the, the answers that are hard for us to understand, but that is who God is, and the Bible backs that up again and again. Isaiah 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God? Now, I've had an everlasting gobstopper, and i got to tell you, it was not everlasting. It sure lasted a long time, but even our attempts at making something everlasting just chipped teeth and cost dental bills, but it never was everlasting, right? But he is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So you must understand God's eternal nature does something our nature doesn't. And his transcends time, space, and dimension. As humans, we're created within a framework of time, space, and dimension. Let me give you an example. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And when he spoke creation, he created time. What do we base our time on? Anybody know? The sun, the moon, so all of a sudden we have a linear process called time. He created a space in which we operate and a dimension in which we operate, okay? God, though, by the way, is not restricted to that dimension. What we can't understand about God is he actually is out here, 
outside of time, space, and dimension. As eternal, he doesn't have any measurement that way. So again, we start trying to think about that, and it just makes our heads hurt, right? Because we don't have in our finite minds the faculties to begin to understand the eternal nature of God. But we can, by faith, lean back in Scripture and say, okay, God, this is who you've, re- you, you've revealed yourself to be to us. And so Colossians 1.17, Paul says this, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, that means, again, not going to die without the ability to die, invisible, The only God, be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. And then David in the Psalms, before the mountains were born, or you were brought forth, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So who made God? Where did he come from? The reality is he is self-existent, eternal. He did not have a beginning. He's from everlasting past to everlasting future. And all we can do is praise God that He always has been, He is right now, and He always will be. And that gives me hope because that means God is fully involved and fully knows and has plans and hopes for me that I can rest in because He's eternal. And He sees it from eternity past to eternity future. And that's the kind of God who says, I am. I'm with you right now. Yes, I'm all of this. It's mind-baffling but I am with you right now. So, next question moves from that that says this. So why does God declare what he will do and then allows his mind to be changed by appeals from David, Solomon, etc.? So let me, let, me, let me address what the question is hinting toward. Not only is God eternal, we've established that. God always has been, always will be eternal. That's part of his attribute. God is also what's called, and this is a Bible college term, so if you went to Bible college, this will probably ring a bell, immutable. Now, immutable means unchangeable. And not only is it that something that is immutable won't change, it can't by nature change. And so God in His Word declares He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's an attribute of God that He is unchanging. But the question says, okay, if God is unchanging, then why does it appear as though he changes? At the the voice of uh, Solomon or Moses or David, why would God change? So that's the, I think that's the question here is addressing if God is unchanging, why does it appear as though he changes? Does God change his mind? It, or is God certain on what he's going to do? So this is the question. And Numbers 23, 19 gives us the foundation to start here. And in Numbers 23, what we see happening is this is that part of Israel's history when they are about to enter their promised land. They're kind of sitting in the plains of Moab about to cross into the land of promise. And the king of Moab, Balak, is worried about this vast population of people called the Israelites because he's heard about them. He's heard about their God who has acted in mighty ways on their behalf, and he's worried for the sake of his own kingdom. And so he summons a prophet named Balaam, a prophet for hire, and he hires Balaam to come to curse the people of Israel. And so long story short, Balaam comes, read the story, it's very remarkable, talking donkey, the whole nine yards, a very interesting story. But we arrive to the point where Balaam has been summoned to this mountain peak to look over the Israelites and then to speak curses over them. 
because this prophet, certainly if he speaks a curse, it will curse the people. Balaam, by the way, is not a high example of a prophet, okay? So when you read the story, don't go, oh, that's really weird. I mean, it is weird, but Balaam's kind of a nut job. But God uses nut jobs, and aren't you glad he does, right? So yay, thank you, God, you use nut jobs like me. And so um, God uses Balaam. And when Balaam opens his mouth to speak, the only things that can come out are blessings. Because this is the nation of Israel. This is God's people. He is, they're a covenant community before God. And Balaam cannot speak a curse against them. And Balak is getting pretty torqued about why aren't you cursing them, right? And this is kind of the context now of this statement. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We see the same kind of phrase used again in 1 Samuel chapter 15, different part of the history of Israel. Now they've already been in their land of promise, and while they're there, they're kind of like, hey, God, it'd be really cool if we could have a king like all the nations around us. Now, the reality is God wanted to be their king. God wanted to be the one that would lead them, and he would use priests who would mediate between God and the people, but God would be their king. It wouldn't be a monarchy. It would be a theocracy. God would lead them, but they wanted a king. So God allows them to have a king, and Saul is established, and then Saul becomes a wicked king. And in, in, in the story as it flows out, God regrets really that he had made Saul king. And I think what's interesting, and this is for you Bible students out there, notice that in Scripture, any time there's an event that appears as though God is relenting or changing his mind about something, within the context of that story, there are verses like the one I just read and like the one I'm going to read right now, which is from 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So every time it looks as though God has changed his mind, I think it's interesting there's a summary statement at the end of that context that says, I don't. So here's the question. Okay, Kelly, then how do we reconcile what appears to be God relenting or changing his mind, or even there's times in Scripture in the King James Version where it says where God repented. I mean, why would God repent? That means somebody who is doing wrong chooses to do right. I mean, what, what's up with that? How can we reconcile that with the fact that God is never changing, that God is immutable? How do we reconcile these events in Scripture? And that's what causes skeptics of Scripture to say, see, the Bible's full of conflicts. At face value, Granted, it might, but we can't just stop at face value. We've got to dig around at what's happening. So let me give you an example. Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we see this story of the people of Israel who have now left their slavery in Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and they have observed God do miraculous things, right? Plagues, significant plagues that happened against the Egyptians that did not touch the Israelite homes or their camps. God's hand of protection upon them. Ultimately, Pharaoh lets them go. What happens? Red Sea opens wide open. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I saw that, I'd think, wow, this God is pretty powerful, pretty awesome. 
Um, and they go through the Red Sea and cross into their, the, the Sinai area. And at the foot of the mountain, God speaks to the people of Israel. And they're like, ah, we don't want to hear God. It's too scary. So Moses, you go on our behalf and talk to God. So Moses is climbing up the mountain and he spends time with God on the mountain, receiving like the Ten Commandments and things like that, right? Well, while Moses is away, the people of Israel tell Aaron, why don't you make us a God that we can worship? Now, they're already violating the first two of the Ten Commandments, right? Because they want, they've grown in a culture where the gods were very visible. God is not visible. God would not allow people to make an image of him, right? But they have their way. They make an idol. They begin to worship about it. And God sees what's happening. And this is what he says in Exodus uh, 32. And this is where we're going to take a look at this idea about the mind of God changing. 32, he says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. Now, if I was Moses... And I could see what was going to be happening in the near future. I probably would have taken God up on his offer. Yeah, God, you know what? Go ahead. Just destroy them all. Start with me. I'm a pretty good guy. But what we're going to see is that's not what's happening. But now, now here's the issue. It looks as though God is making a decision to destroy Israel. They're stiff-necked. They're wicked. God has seen them violating already the commands he has given. And he's like, I'm done with them. That's what it looks like at the, the, the face value of Scripture, right? So, let's talk about this for a minute. For anybody to change their mind, because how many of you would say, honestly, you have changed your mind sometime in the past about something? You ever changed your mind? Of course, if you're human, you've changed your mind like you changed your underwear. I mean, it's something that just happens in human life. Now, listen, the reason we change our mind usually involves two things. One of them would be, that we gained new information we didn't know before. So how many of you, even as a parent, you've changed your mind about a decision you've made once you became more informed about the situation? You went, oh, okay, well, then maybe that's okay, right? So we change our mind based on new information, or we change our mind based on a change of circumstance, and then we have to respond or react to the change of circumstance. So for us to change our mind involves basically two things, new information or a different situation arises that recalls us to respond differently. Now, as we apply these two to God, let's, let's explore this for a second. Would God bump into any new information? Okay, for those of you who know the other attribute of God, which is that God is all-knowing, they call it omniscient, it's not like God would go, oh, you know what, I didn't think about that. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's not like God is going to be caught off guard, right? So it's not like God has new information. So in this occasion in Scripture, why would God appear to change? It's not because of new information. It could be because of a change in the circumstances. Now, I'm going to read my notes here carefully because I want to make sure I get these words out right. I wrestled with this this week. Because you start getting into this, it's deep weeds, friends. You start getting into this stuff. So let me just read, read what I wrote down. All right. 
If God changed his mind, it cannot be because he learned some bit of information that he did not previously know, for God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. Therefore, it must be because the situations have changed that require a different attitude or action. But if the circumstances have changed, it's not necessarily the case that God has changed. See my point? Circumstances have. It may simply be the case that the circumstances have changed and God's relationship to the new circumstance are different because the circumstances changed, not God. Now, before you just die now trying to think this through, let me give you back to Scripture. Here we have a crisis moment. People are rebelling against God. And in his divine nature of justice, he has to respond. But here's something else about God. He is not just all wrathful. Okay? There's other attributes of God called mercy and grace. Right? One of the things we can't understand is that God can be fully these things always. We tend to be like polar people when we're going to be all about wrath or we're all about compassion. We have a hard time figuring out how in the world can you be all of these things. Why? Because we're imperfect. God is perfect in his nature, and he's all of these things perfectly. So here's the thing. God's attitude towards sin is always anger. Why? Because sin has messed up the whole thing. So his response to sin is anger. The wages of sin is what? Death. Okay. But here's the thing. His attitude toward those who call on him, especially in repentance, is mercy. So in this story, we see an activity happening in the base camp where they're rebelling against God, and his wrath needs to respond to that. But something happens. There is a change in the circumstance. Let's look at it. It goes on. Exodus 32, 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants. Here's what's cool. Moses is reminding God, not that God needs to be reminded, but I love the work that's happening in Moses. Because this encounter is more about what's happening in Moses than what is happening in the heart of God. We have to remember this. God is at work in imperfect people, and he's got to work on Moses. Because Moses initially might have said, fine, God, destroy them all. But God's working in Moses. He's got to lead this rebellious, stubborn-necked people through the wilderness for the next 40 years, for crying out loud. God's got to do some work in him. So, but Moses says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self that I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then, here's the key, then the Lord. So something happened, okay? Usually then means next step. Something happened, then there's a response to it. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people, now get this point, the disaster that he had threatened. There's a lot of stuff here that I really don't have time to go into, but here's the point. God threatened what he was going to do to Moses and the people of Israel, mostly the people of Israel, but it wasn't necessarily his expressed will. 
And there's got to be something there to, to just kind of feed your mind on for a second. But before Moses prayed for Israel, they were under God's judgment. And by Moses' intercession for the people of Israel, he brought them under God's mercy. So God did not change what happened. The circumstances changed. Their position before God changed. And here's what's beautiful about this story. We look at the Old Testament as separate from the New Testament. And we'll talk about that next week. In fact, next week's question is, why is the God of the Old Testament look violent and angry, and yet the God of the New Testament looks lovey and compassionate? How do we reconcile that? Come back next week as we explore that one. But here's the thing. I'm not going to go there today, all right? But, but come back next week. But here's the thing. Moses is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. In fact, Hebrews talks about this, right? Moses intercedes for the people of Israel before God. They're about to experience the full measure of his wrath. Moses steps into the gap between the people of Israel and God's wrath, and he beckons his mercy. What did Jesus do on the cross, friends? He stepped into that space between what our sins deserved, the wrath of God, the justice of God being leveraged to us as a fallen human race. Jesus steps in the middle of that, and he intercedes. He takes the place that we deserved to be in, and he died. So what we have to understand is there's a grand story happening here from Old Testament to New Testament. It's not separate and then part two. I mean, this is like one big story. So God is revealing something about himself and his redemptive plan that Moses is a part of. But there also is a change in circumstances that God chooses to show the other aspect of his nature. Did God change? No. He is immutable. A different aspect of his nature was beckoned for. And aren't you glad that God can be fully both? Let me give you a point. You were saved because you asked Christ to forgive your sins and come and live in your life. Aren't you glad that at that point, God's judgment towards you has ceased, and now he extends to you mercy and grace? We're positionally different. We call it justification. We're now justified before God. Our position changed from being sinners to being saints. The difference? Justified because of what Christ did, applying the work of the cross upon our lives. Now, here's the deal. And again, I want to go back to my notes and not miss this point. The reality is that God knew all circumstances, what would happen with Israel, because he foreknows everything. He can see it all from a mile away, right? This is God. He sees it from beginning to end. So if he could see it from beginning to end, why wouldn't he change their hearts and play it out different? Well, it's called human free will, right? We have this ability to act against God. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to appeal to the hearts of you parents for a moment. I have four kids at home. Let's suppose that upon their birth, you were given a book, and that book showed every single thing in life that they would do. They would say, how they would act, how they'd respond. So you were given this manual that today at 5 o'clock, X was going to happen. I mean, you, you, just, you had it all laid out in front of you. If you received that book, would you look at it and go, okay, good, and then just walk away from their lives and never parent them any longer? No, you would still want to be involved in their life. And even though you knew that X was going to happen today at 5, 
you wouldn't necessarily just silently let it happen, would you? You would, as the parent, you'd kind of go, hey, there's this thing that's about to happen, and I want to speak to you about it. I want to threaten you about it because I hope that you'll hear and change, even though I already know the outcome. Wouldn't we do that as parents? And aren't you glad that God is not like hands off, that he's actively involved? Why? Because he's the I am. And here's the truth, friends. Relationship with God in this covenant relationship, it is messy. I mean, you have a perfect, unchangeable, eternal God trying to be involved in the lives of very imperfect, messy people. Guess what's going to happen? We're going to misinterpret God. We're going to misunderstand God. We're going to accuse him of stuff he's not worthy of because we just don't understand. Because what looks like hatred actually could be love. How many of you as parents have ever experienced that before? Well, your extension toward your kids was for their greater good, which was motivated by what? Your duty? No, you loved them. But your love looked like, to them, hate. Have you experienced that? That's what we see in the heart of the nature of the Father of God. He loves, and a lot of things that happen we can't understand, but we'll talk more about this next week, but it is love. Now, here's what's happening. The situation changed in Exodus. So God responded to the change. Let me give you an example. What we're seeing happen here is the weakness of the human language. Does God speak English? This is not, it's not a trick question. I don't know what God speaks, okay? Um, because we're English-speaking people, we assume God speaks English. I mean, of course, God speaks English. No, I don't know what God speaks. It could be a totally different heavenly language. The problem is we only have human words and human language to try to express God. So we already have a limit. It's called language. We have a limit to an unlimited God. And so when Bible writers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, they only had weak tools called the human language to use to describe an infinite, unexplainable God. So you can already see how we're kind of set up for some problems here, right? So what happens is we have to use the best words we have to explain what happened. And if you ever read Revelation, you kind of go, yeah, I think I get it. I mean, you're reading what John is seeing in Revelation, it's like, holy cow, what is this? Well, it's John trying to describe what he's seeing in the limited amount of words he has to explain it. Let me give you an example. You take in a beautifully scenic Hawaiian sunset. How are you going to put words to that? Right? You ever been to some place or had an experience where it's like, I just, I can't put that to words. Words will cheapen what is happening here. Okay, so now, God, in his vastness, words will cheapen what is happening there. But we're people who need a language. And so, The writers put to word what is happening in this covenant relationship. And the way we call this is we call it anthropomorphic, okay? What that means is man-centered language has to be used to communicate God. So there's a weakness already at work here. Let me give you an example of anthropomorphic language, all right? Right now, you are all positioned on my left. This says this is L, that means left. So you're all on my left, but now... You're all on my right, okay? This is a man-centered language to say, you're on my left. Oh, now you're on my right. Now, here's the question. Did you move? Did you move from my left to my right? 
Maybe you did. Who knows? I mean, that's, that's the, no. I don't think you moved. The reality is you were fixed. You were unchanging. My position to you has moved. This is the issue of the human language. The position of Israel changed from being under God's wrath to being under God's mercy. And the only word we have to say that is that God relented. No, God didn't really relent. He responded to the change. He didn't change. He just responded to the change. Now, that's a long way to answer the question, but here's the point. God is unchanging, but when the circumstances change, which God foreknew and foresaw, he responds to it differently. And aren't you glad he does? Because here's what's true about you and me. Our paths were fixed toward destruction. That was our lot in life. Our sin deserved consequence called death. And God in his justice could have said, that's it, I'm done with you. But there's a thing called repentance. When we recognize the brokenness of our sin and we need the love and the acceptance of a creator who loved us and had a plan for our salvation and we respond to that salvation, our circumstances have now changed. We're not under God's wrath, we're under his mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. Did God ever change in that equation? No. Because he was always fully just, and he's always full of mercy. He is unchanging. He appears to change based upon what it is that we are appealing to out of his nature. Is your mind numb yet? All right, so the point is God doesn't change. There you go. Although in Scripture it may look like he does, in his nature he is unchanging. Why is that important for us? Because there are promises God has made in Scripture that he will never go back on. Promises of salvation and eternity that he will never change. I'm glad that God is not like how we tend to parent our kids, how we kind of tend to keep changing and we confuse our kids. Like, which parent are you now, the angry parent or the happy parent? Good cop, bad cop, who are you? And we confuse our kids. God is not that way. Aren't you glad? He keeps his word. He's unchanging. And while it appears as though he changes, no, he doesn't. Now, next question, and I'll be quick, I promise. Can you speak to the apparent scriptural conflicts between the... And this is similar to the last question. But, and maybe you didn't submit this question and you really don't care. Well, hang in there, all right? Uh, can you speak to the apparent scriptural conflicts between the portrayal of God as all-knowing, which means he knows ahead of time, versus God being surprised or disappointed about Israel's rebellious behavior, such as that he grieved ever creating them? So we have this idea that if God foreknows everything and knows how it's going to play out, then why does he act surprised, why does he judge when people do exactly what he knows they're going to do? Do you kind of get the question? All right, so let me give you a verse. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we see this take place. We, we see evidence of what the question's talking about. What happens is we've been created, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, chapter 3 happens, which is the sin of mankind, they disobey God, they eat the forbidden fruit, they're kicked out of the garden, sin is birthed in their hearts, and from that point it is a downward spiral. We see the, the, the effects of sin within the human heart until we come to the point of the flood. Listen to what it says, Genesis 6. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. I want you to look at two words there. Regretted, but he was deeply troubled. Okay, now 
put that in the context of that anthropomorphic, the idea that we have limited man-centered language to describe what's happening here, okay? So it seems as though God is regretting something he set into motion, so to speak, all right? Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Every time we see the wrath of God expressed, we also see a picture of his redemption. Please remember that. We're going to talk more about that next week. Why would God destroy the entire earth with a flood? Because the hearts of men were wicked and evil all the time. But there was one who wasn't. And there's a story of redemption, the ark, the whole thing. It's, a pic, it's picturesque of, again, Jesus, okay? Snapshots of the redemptive story that comes complete and full circle in Christ. But here's the point. We see an example like this one, and there's others in Scripture I don't have time to take you to, but where it seems like God regrets something. So why would, why, why would God regret something he did if he already is all-knowing and has made a decision? Why would he regret what, what appears to be at work here? So here's the statement I want to make, and then we'll kind of come from here. So the grief and pain of human sin was not only felt by humans. We tend to think about it only affecting us. But you have to think about the creator, covenant God, and what sin has done to him. Okay? God himself was grieved by the sin of humankind. He is not unfamiliar with the consequence of our sins, friend. It was called the payment of the son that he loved for eternity coming in humankind and dying for us. That was, that's grief for the Father's heart. So on the one hand, our God is not static, monotonous, lifeless. And aren't you glad he's involved in our life? He's the I am involved right now. But on the other hand, he is a personal, relational being. God's activity in our world is subject to change and allows for all the dynamics of relationships that happen. Here's again, this is what happens when God tries to involve his holy self in an unholy people. It's going to get messy. It's going to get weird. It's going to look as though, didn't, didn't God see that coming? Couldn't God have stopped that? Why would God allow that, right? I mean, why would God regret that? Because he's working in our lives, and we're an imperfect people. How do you insert a holy and perfect God into such imperfection? You don't, but what he does is he has to respond differently. Let me give you an example. Back to parenting. I have four kids, and I've discovered that all four of them are different. Two of them, I swear, are Stutzmans, and two are Dufors. I won't tell you which ones are which, because I have family in the room that are Stutzmans. But what I've discovered parenting is I cannot parent all four of my kids the same. You ever notice that as parents? So when you treat them differently, you get misjudged as a parent. And you're told you're playing favorites. Because you can't dispense discipline the same to every kid because they respond differently. You ever notice when you tried to use the same discipline for multiple children, it doesn't work. So what do you do? You have to insert yourself into their context and discipline in a way that works for them. Multiply that by, oh, let's say six billion, okay? How does a holy God interact with that many 
dysfunctional people in our world yet maintain his holiness. It's, again, mind-boggling for us to understand. It can look confusing from our perspective looking up because it looks like God is always changing. Didn't God see that coming? Why couldn't he respond to that? Why would God regret that? There's always bound to be conflict. And God's ways appear to us as though he's changing and there's variation in his character and his essence, but there's not. He's not going to change. Yes, he sees it coming, and it grieves him when it comes. Here's an example. In fact, John Piper puts it this way. I love the way he wrote it. God is quite capable of lamenting a state of affairs that he himself foreknew and brought about. Let me give you an example. You probably heard these words before as a kid. I remember hearing them. Wait until your father gets home. Now, imagine being that father on his way home. He knows what his kids did because the wife called him at work. He knows that he has a standard. He knows that his kids need to learn from this discipline. But he already laments what he has to do. But if he doesn't do it, it goes against his nature. So while he sees it coming, he laments that he has to do it. And sometimes, parents, you've done this before. You might even regret that you're a parent right now. Boy, I wish I wasn't a parent. I don't want to do this. But do you really mean that? No. What you're saying is, this is hard. Can you begin to see the love of God who, even though he foresees and knows what's going to happen, he can still lament and regret the fact that this has to happen. This is the love of God. Not the hatred, not the wrath, or even the justice of God. It's all of those things, certainly, but it's his love that we've messed up with. And so he regrets it. But in his divine nature, he has to deal with it. But he can regret that he has to. I have never enjoyed any aspect of discipline that I have had to do as a parent. I've never enjoyed it. If you enjoy it, I need to counsel you later. I've never enjoyed it. I'm not giddy about it. (laughs) Look at this, I get to beat my kid. No, it's hard. But I love them. I regret it, but I know it's worth it. That's what we see in the heart of God in this passage in Genesis. So the nature of our covenant God is the God who knows and responds in the messes of our life. Are we going to misunderstand him? You bet we are. Are we going to be confused by him? You bet. Because he is so not like us. But aren't you glad he's willing to roll around in this with us? and be involved. That is God, unchanging, all-knowing, and yet willing to be involved in the mess of our lives and allow us to be angry at him, to misunderstand him, but yet he always leads with his love for us. Let's pray. Father, I know that scratching at these questions often seems just seems futile, because we know that in our, in our finite minds, we really still can't comprehend the vastness of who you are. And we're going to have to be okay with that. That's when we lean back in faith and we say, God, this is what your word reveals about who you are. And we're going to stand on that. That yes, you are just. That you will act upon your justice in wrath. And there will be a day that that will happen. But you're also a God of mercy who responds to our position changed coming through Christ Jesus that we're now redeemed. And you respond to that with forgiveness and eternal life and hope. 
And that's hard for us to understand. That's why we wonder how a good God could send people to hell. That's why we wonder why why things were allowed to happen in Scripture. We can't understand it because it's difficult for us to understand the fullness and the vastness of who you are. But I pray you'd help us as as your children to rest in the certainty that you are for us, not against us. So I pray for anybody in the room maybe who feels like God is against them right now. Because situations that are happening that they can't understand, and they're trying to interpret God through their circumstances, and wow, that's a mess waiting to happen. We can't interpret you through our circumstances. We have to go outside of those to see the big picture of who you are, God. And I pray for them right now that they would not shake an angry fist at you or be bitter any longer, but they would be willing and even daring to lean towards you by faith. That you want to work in their life because you are the I am right now in the midst of their life you are and you're there for them and i pray they would rest in that today even if they can't make sense of it thank you god for that truth and assurance today in jesus name amen